And now that we have tasted of these good things, Lord, the world and sin, the past and the old life sours in our mouth and may it grow ever more sour to us in light of the sweetness of the glory and grace of our salvation. For those, Lord, that face difficulty, I pray that we would look to you who look to the joy set before you, Jesus, to endure the cross so that whatever training in righteousness, whatever discipline you may have planned for us, we can embrace it in faith, believing that it will yield for us the peaceful fruit of righteousness and more than this, that we will share in the holiness of God Himself. Looking forward to the day of glorious festal celebration with innumerable angels because of that precious blood of Christ sprinkled on the mercy seat that shouts a better word than the blood of Abel. We thank you for the mercy and grace that we have found in our Lord and Savior. Open up our ears and our hearts to receive greater knowledge of these truths as we turn now to the counsel of your word. Let the Spirit use these moments to fortify us in our faith, to equip us to glorify you in this dark world that more might come to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be saved. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What riches we have before us and therefore a glorious gift and opportunity to open up the scriptures. Turn with me to Psalm 74 in our psalm series. We are at this masculine of Asaph, Psalm 74. While you're turning there, I've called this message Ruins Song. Ruins Song. A song that is worthy of an occasion where you watch before you everything that you had invested your hope and your identity in in flames smoldering in front of you and you offer to the Lord this praise song, but it comes in the form of lament, anthem, and supplication. The aim of this morning's message is to learn to worship when life is not promising. Psalm 74 teaches us to worship when life is not promising. Of course, this theme overlaps with our text from last week, which we uh, sought to learn from Hebrews 12, the value of the discipline of the Lord. The kind of discipline that for the moment seems painful. All discipline, in fact, true discipline, discipline worthy of a legitimate son is painful for the time, but it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. Yes, even sharing in the holiness of God for those who are trained by it. So in light of these truths, let us consider Psalm 74. Would you stand with me with your Bible open out of reverence for the Word of God and let us behold the immortal, immortal, infallible Word of Christ in Psalm 74, verse 1. O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. 
They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Verse 12. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the, inhabita- of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God. Defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Learning to worship when life is not promising. Imagine for a moment you're out for dinner at McDonald's or something more healthy with your family and You're coming back from this fun time at the restaurant. You're pulling up into your driveway. You get a little closer and suddenly you have this feeling looking through the trees that something is wrong. And sure enough, what looks like a wisp of smoke rises in front of you and that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach grows as you drive into the clearing where your house is. And of course, I'm imagining my own residence as I speak. And there before you is nothing but a pile of ashes, a few smoldering puffs of smoke, and a few pieces of metal equipment like your wood stove or something else, a refrigerator, standing there as charred witnesses to the merciless destruction of the flame. Many people have come home to this kind of thing when their house has been destroyed in a fire. Many people, perhaps you know one or two, have experienced this kind of devastation. When a tragedy hits literally that close to home. Everything you worked for, or virtually so, and treasured and lived in, you might think or attempted to assume, is gone. As those emotions rush over you in this profound sense of loss, even despair. Furthermore, imagine you have no insurance policy, no savings, and no supportive family and friends. No one to call on your cell phone and stand next to you. And grieve with you, offer you their blanket, bring you a change of clothes, offer you safe haven to take you in until you can figure things out. This is something that might give us a taste, just a taste, this imaginary situation of the devastating loss of the temple. 
for the people of God when it was destroyed on more than one occasion through the history of redemption. This destruction presented to the faithful few at the time, for instance, of the Babylonian invasion, complete, utter, total, devastating, both physical and spiritual loss. That would have been the initial reaction that would flood into their heart. What will we do now? Everything has been burned down. This happened in 586 B.C., when the apostasy of the southern kingdom earned for them exile and the destruction of the temple itself. The temple would be rebuilt under Ezra, but it would never quite be the same as the glory that Moses' temple once knew. The temple would be destroyed again in A.D. 70 because, again, the people of God had not heard and heeded His word, and thus their hopes and dreams their investment their traditions, their identity, their culture, their national touchstones of unity and patriotism, hope, prayer, faith, religion, would be burst into flames before them as if an atomic bomb was dropped on their hometown. This is the situation, the occasion for Psalm 74. The sanctuary was far more than a home for the people of God. You can imagine your home going up in flames, how hard that must be. How hard that would be to bear. But the sanctuary, the temple, was far more than a home for the people of God. It was, in fact, a home for God Himself among His people. Thus, when the glory left the temple, when the temple was destroyed, it meant that God had left His people. And for those whose eyes were open enough to realize it, those would have been the most hopeless days you could imagine, at least at first glance. The temple, furthermore, is not a connect, collection of sentimental memories or a mere refuge from the physical elements, but it was the very instrument of their communion with Almighty God. It was the way they knew the Lord, the way their relationship with Him was certified. The priests would go in, they would mediate, they would intercede, pray for them, offer sacrifices, and then upon that obedience, they could feel right with the Lord. They could have this sense and assurance of my sins are covered over and atoned for. I'm in right standing with the Lord. But without it, they were lost. Without it, they, were just, they, were, they weren't just homeless. They were absolutely lost, abandoned, hopeless, condemned, saved for God's mercy. Saved for God's mercy. Is there any hope here? And so the psalmist cries. Can we relate to Psalm 74? I've given you an illustration of your own home burning, but that doesn't really relate as directly as the ideas contained in this psalm. Can we relate to the feeling of abandonment when the presence of the Lord is more estranged, is not as familiar to us, is distant from us in some way, where in our experience, we don't share in the blessings and closeness, in the beauty of relationship, in the joys and the privileges and the blessings of the knowledge of God and the worship of Him as much as we otherwise could, <coughs> it would seem to me that if we set our hope and joy exclusively on the Lord, that it would be easier to relate to Psalm 74, but I'm afraid that we don't often do this. That instead we entertain delusions of supplemental saviors. In other words, we kind of hedge our bets. 
We place hope in something over here and something over there so that if there's a real spiritual crisis, we have a lot of diversification in our portfolio. We have our eggs in many baskets. So we have reason, although this aspect of my life may not be feeling up to par, my relationship with the Lord may not be hitting on all cylinders as it were, but at least I have this to focus on, a hobby, a vacation coming up, a raise at work, um, an important relationship that I really appreciate with a close friend. These things can be delusional supplemental saviors that are meant to supplement our hope and joy that ought to be exclusively in the Lord. We may more readily relate to this psalm, uh, perhaps, or we would more readily relate to this psalm if, in fact, as the psalmist, as the psalmist uh, professes, all of our faith and hope are in the Lord. And then if for some reason that hope was threatened in any way. Perhaps the reason the Psalms of Lament, in, con- in their context, that Psalms of sadness and sorrow seem foreign to us, is due to our tendency to readily invest our hope elsewhere while waiting for the Lord. Consider one example. The Church of Jesus Christ in our land, I submit to you, in many cases has been overrun by the spirit of the age in our time. I was in a conversation this week with a young man, and he and his wife answered a call from the Lord to adopt some distant relatives, three very dysfunctional children, older children. They took them into their home, older insofar as, you know, most people adopt, and children are very young because it's easier to assimilate them into their household and into their family, but this wasn't the case at all. They were welcoming in the byproducts emotional and spiritual and otherwise of abuse and dysfunction and neglect and abandonment and horrific trouble and problems these children lived in. He described the first year as pretty heavy laden with trials, but there was a light of faith in his eyes. He said, God has done miracles in my children. He said, when we took pictures on the first day of school this year, there was no cussing. There was no swearing. There was no fighting back. There was no self-harm. There was just smiles and straight A's the first week. And I asked him, what's the most difficult thing? You know, how, how have you weathered the storm? He said, to be honest with you, the hardest thing has been the lack of encouragement from those who are supposed to be close, family, even Christians. They think we're crazy. What are you doing? You're putting your kids in jeopardy, your future in question, you're betting, uh, uh, you're uh, risking all of your, your uh, time and energy and money and, and welcoming this into your home. It, this just isn't a wise decision. And as we talked, it occurred to me that these kind of reactions are the kinds of reactions that indicate to me, insofar as the church confesses Christ, yet puts way, way, way over there somewhere the call to take up your cross and follow Him, that there is an aspect of Psalm 74 that is present with us today. The church, at least the confessing church, is not living in light of the presence of God that would give her faith to walk in a manner worthy of her call and to take up the charge to take in the lost and the lowly and to go wherever he'd send, no matter how expensive, and to pay the price, looking to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. 
we may have reason to lament in our land today because so many confess Christ, but it seems like Christ is so far from us. We mused in this conversation, my friend and I, that if every Christian home just did whatever they could to welcome in the destitute, the lost, the abandoned, the lowly, the orphan, the widow, that we would defund in one generation every foolish government attempt to do the same that only contributes to the cycle of of family dysfunction and subsidizes irresponsibility. We surmise that with the riches that are contained collectively among the church, if we would just invest it in what the Lord has called us to do, that this globe might have been encircled with the gospel to each and every nook and uh, cranny and every crevice and corner three times already, perhaps. We can trust these things ultimately to the Lord's providence. But we can see in light of the great potential for the glorious presence of God alive and well and through His church in stark contrast with the general apostasy that is more prevalent in our society, that we live among spiritual ruins. We live in the ruins of a once great, to some degree, confessing Christian nation. What prayers and songs are appropriate, given that we are surrounded by all of this carnage? Psalm 74 answers that question. Perhaps we can relate to it more when our perspective is changed by these words of the Lord. Consider Psalm 74 in a three-part harmony. There are three main sections I submit to you. Number one, lament. Number two, anthem. And number three, supplication. Learning to worship when life is not promising. Learning to lament. Learning to raise an anthem. Learning to bring our supplication before the Lord. Three brief definitions. Number one, lament. Lament is a song, that's a sad song, that gives a poetic voice to our grief. A lament is a song that strikes a chord deeper than mere speech to allow us to express the depth of anguish of soul that we feel in light of the deep sorrow, anguish that we are going through. This is lament. Anthem. Anthem is a song worthy of an occasion to honor something of preeminent importance, something stronger, bigger, timeless, powerful, over and above us. An anthem is a song of praise, of exaltation, of magnification. It celebrates an idea or a person bigger than ourselves. And finally, supplication. Supplication is a humble and earnest request. It is both desperate and it understands its desperation, humble and earnest. And it's a request. The person who is humble and earnest is admitting his need and admitting the power of the person to whom he's making his entreaty to supply it. It affirms the sovereignty of God, the desperation of man, and humility. These are the three elements of the ruin song. Learning to worship when life is not promising through lament anthem, and supplication. First of all, verses 1 through 11, lament. Notice that here questions and complaints are raised. Verses 1 and 2 circle the question marks in your mind. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Question mark. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Question mark. So the psalmist is honest 
with the questions that are plaguing his soul, and he voices them to the Lord in his lament. He is honestly bringing the difficulties, the struggle of his soul. These verses 1 through 11 are sandwiched in question marks or bookended. We've seen verses 1 and 2. Now circle in your mind the question marks of verses 10 and 11. How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Question mark. Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Question mark. Why do you hold back your right hand? Again, a question. Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Also, in this lament, there are key words that indicate a complaint, an issue to bring to the Lord. What is pressing upon the experience and the soul of the psalmist? Well, notice the references in the second person to the enemies of God. Verse 3, the enemy has destroyed everything. Verse 4, your foes have roared in the midst of the meeting place. Speaking of them, he says, verse 5, they were like those who swing axes. It says further, verse 7, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name. They said to themselves, verse 8, we will utterly subdue them, and they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. So the questions and complaints that flood the soul during times of great hardship and testing and trial and great spiritual famine in a land are featured in a lament. Now, the author laments, Asaph, the condition of three things, specifically in these first 11 verses. He laments the condition of the people of God, secondly, the condition of the sanctuary, and thirdly, the prophetic office. So you might ask yourself, what was threatened by the foes that cut down the sanctuary and burned it, that profaned it, that uttered these blasphemies? What was threatened by this? Well, in his lament, he says three things essentially. The people are threatened, the sanctuary, and the prophetic office. And this is cause for great concern. If the people of God are in distress, if they, generally speaking, suffer a lackluster state of spiritual life, if the sanctuary, (coughs) the place of communion with God and man, as represented and we participate in through His means, is neglected, if it lies in ruins, if the prophetic office, the declaration of the Word of God, in clarity, specificity, conviction, and in truth, if any of these are lacking in the land, it is cause for great sorrow, great anguish indeed. Notice verses 1 and 2. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Who, are, who is he speaking of with himself, us, in this passage? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Who is he identifying with? As a person of the Lord, as a lost and outcast among the faithful, the remnant that remains, he describes himself as a mere sheep and those who are with him. Why do you cast us off, sheep? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? He uses a second term to describe the people of God. Verse 2, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. So sheep and congregation. These are terms that describe us, beloved. We, the people of God, in this day and age, are His sheep. We are the people, the sheep of His pasture. Other Psalms, like 23, you're familiar with. The Lord is spoken of as our good shepherd. Inasmuch as we are sheep, 
We are desperate people. We are vulnerable. We have a, a dependence, an utter dependence on our shepherd. We have insufficiencies. And we often hear that sheep are not that wise either. Without being guided and led by their shepherd, they lead themselves to their own destruction, off the cliff of their own demise, or into the jaws of a predator. Sheep are stupid. Sheep need direction, provision, protection. They need care. They need responsibility, love, concern, and a dedicated uh, attendance by their Lord and shepherd. Congregation. Congregation speaks a little more to the idea of elect. Those who are set apart, called out, chosen as a holy nation to show forth the praises of the Lord. No doubt Asaph has in mind the promise to Abraham, you will be a light to all the nations. But the temple is destroyed. Has the light been extinguished? He is asking. He says, one day Isaiah the prophet says, all nations will stream up to Mount Zion to hear the law of the Lord. But what if the law of the Lord is no longer proclaimed in the meeting places? What if the temple is in ruins? And the place most treasured, most protected, most sacred, where the law was laid up in the tabernacle in the temple, is no more. Where is the congregation if the place of gathering is destroyed? He speaks of them, of the people of God as an elect people, as a congregation, recognizing they have a call and a devotion and a claim. More than this, he goes on later in the text to say that they are beneficiaries of a covenant, of unbreakable promises that God has made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through them this lineage preserved, through these means of staying spiritually grounded and not forgetting the Exodus, but forever practicing the Passover, has a testimony to the next generation that one day there will be a generation, at least a few among them who will recognize the Messiah. The people need help. The people, their status is threatened by the enemy as the temple lies in ruins. And this threatened status, against this threatened status, our author brings two ideas, redemption and Mount Zion. Verse 2, he says of this congregation, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. With reference to Mount Zion, we've already mentioned the temple itself, and that was the place which represented the conditions met for reconciliation with the Holy God. But redemption represented the price paid to secure this status. What was the price paid? Well, there was a symbolic lamb that was slain whose blood was smeared upon the doorposts of the forefathers of the psalmist in Egypt representing that the shed blood of the Paschal, the Passover, the sacrificed lamb, was the cost for their deliverance from Egypt. Not just from slavery, by their own labor and toil, but more than this, a picture of their own slavery to sin, speaking to the cost of redemption that would one day be satisfied by the Lamb of God, of whom John the Baptist would say, Behold, He is here. He takes away the sin of the world. This is the cost paid to secure our status as his sheep, as his congregation. He reminds the Lord of the purchase price. Remember, Lord, how much you paid for us. Remember how expensive our salvation is. Remember your investment. 
He will go on to emphasize this later under covenant. So this is the concern. He's lamenting the condition of the people. Scattered, lost, without hope. Perhaps they would lose connection to the faith. Where will their testimony be and where will their hope and their future lie if they do not have the traditions that would lead and guide them in the truth of the word? Again, he laments the condition of the sanctuary. Secondly, condition of the sanctuary. Verses 3 through 8, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in the forest of trees. And all is carved wood, of course, speaking of these beautiful, ornate carvings and the decorations within the temple, each one having a profound, directly inspired significance as God had given instructions to shape these things. But they were broken down with hatchets and hammers as the ungodly Babylonians went in and with no reverence for the things of God stole as war trophies the vessels and destroyed the rest with hammers, with hatchets and fire. Verse 7, they set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. In this lament, lamenting the conditions, grieving over the conditions of the sanctuary, it is hard for the psalmist to imagine anything returning to the once pristine condition. And at least as far as the temple itself was concerned, he had a point. History records that with respect to the sanctuary, after the temple of Solomon was destroyed, there are a few things that never returned. One is the Ark of the Covenant. After the temple was destroyed, we're not sure where the Ark of the Covenant went during the Babylonian exile, but it seems to never return in the record of the people of God nor in the Scriptures to the place where it once was featured as the primary fixture of God's certified presence with His people. It's gone, never to return, at least in that form. Secondly, the fire on the brazen altar, the divine fire that was continually burning before the Lord and these ceremonies, it too was gone, history records. The Shekinah glory on the mercy seat, lost. Lost to redemptive history. In Ezekiel it says, the glory of the Lord was departing from the temple, this the second temple, in that case, and again, the experience of lament was not unfamiliar to Ezekiel or Jeremiah who wrote a whole book called Lamentations who grieved over the condition of the people and the condition of the sanctuary. Inside the high priest's vest, there was these tools that he would employ to determine the will of the Lord, Urim and Thummim. You may be familiar with them, something like dice that were cast that would instruct him and they would be supernaturally uh, manipulated by the Lord. They would give him answers to the deep questions and concerns of the people. They too were gone at this time, history records and we also see in our text today that the spirit of prophecy seemed to have escaped. The word of the Lord was not common. Where were the great prophets of old, the Elijahs who could call down fire from heaven? Where were the great architects and influential kings like Solomon, who with his wisdom and riches could build such a glorious wonder of the world? Gone, all gone. Lamenting the people, the sanctuary, and finally the prophetic office. Worst of all, perhaps, in verse 9 through 11, the author says, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is no one among us who knows how long. 
How long, O Lord, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Your right hand, of course, is the purposeful action of the Lord to do something to intervene for his people. Take it from the fold of your garment, he begs, and destroy them, meaning the enemies of the Lord. This psalm anticipates the intertestamental period. Most scholars think that it was written, as I mentioned in the introduction, after the initial destruction of the temple, it was in 586 B.C., when the Babylonians destroyed it. But it's interesting because this psalm would be enough, I submit to you, to give you hope during the 400 so-called silent years of the intertestamental period. You've noticed before, if you've read your Bible much at all, that once you get to Malachi, you turn over and the next book is Matthew, where John the Baptist is a prophet and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Sometimes we forget there was something like four centuries in between. What was gone? The prophetic office. There was no prophet at this time, no recorded revelation. The testimony of the Lord was absent from the people, but they had Psalm 74. And even during this time, it was sufficient. They could read these words which prophetically anticipated these great times of dryness, and they could trust that God will preserve His sheep and His congregation. He will return with His prophet in due course. And we have his word to hang on to. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us. Who knows how long, how long, O Lord, and how many of the faithful would have asked those questions in lament and song during those great dry spells, including the intertestamental period. How long, O Lord? Yet again, our temple is destroyed. How long there is no prophet in the land? Well, this is the first section of the three-part harmony of Psalm 74. There's an abrupt change in verse 12, and this is the second section, anthem. Remember? A song that celebrates and glorifies something bigger, more powerful than anything that you yourself could imagine or contain. Under anthem, there's confession and worship. This key phrase, yet God, opens verse 12. Yet God, my King, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. He goes on to say, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. And he goes on. Turn with me to Job 38. In this anthem, it seems to me that Asaph has been a student of Job. And he has learned of Job's experience something. That as he brings his questions before the Lord, he ought also to bring his anthem. He no doubt recalled when the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind of Job 38, listen to verse 4, saying this, the direct words of the Almighty God to his servant Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the seas with doors? When it burst out from the womb. When I made thick clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. 
and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Wow. What a reprimand. The Lord is calling the attention of Job, his servant, suffering, lamenting, to a little perspective here. This entire world was created by my powerful hand. Do you think it's too short to save you? One sheep, one member of my congregation. The author of Psalm 74 recognizes this, so he does not let his lament stand alone. He follows it with an anthem echoing these themes from Job. Chapter 41 of Job's book, the Lord continues to answer him. He says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or piece his jaw with a hook? He goes on to describe these incredible creatures whose nostrils burst forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes and breath is kindled like coals and flames come forth from his mouth and these amazing evidences of God's creative abilities and powers are maintained. They're superintended, they're controlled, and they're directed by the Lord who made them in the first place. Psalm 74, 14 confesses, You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Finally, as the Lord is making his point in no uncertain terms to Job, Job humbled before this almighty perspective-changing experience says in verse 1 of chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The lament is followed by an anthem where the author recognizes in verse 15, again of Psalm 74, that the Lord splits open springs and brooks. He dries up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And recognizing that in this anthem of the Lord's sovereignty and power over creation, the author Asaph, he recognizes God's power to execute, to intervene by His powerful right hand, and His wisdom to establish. You divided the seas by your might. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. Power to execute, wisdom to establish. So his lament is followed by anthem. And can you hear the hope rushing back into his soul? When the smoldering ruins of the temple are rising before him, it seems like all has lost. Until, you could say, in the psalm that preceded it, I went into the sanctuary of God, having no sanctuary physically, but knowing that he stands in the sanctuary of creation he discerns the end of these enemies, knowing, like the author of Psalm 73, that God sets them in slippery places and makes them fall to ruin and they are destroyed in a moment. He has a purpose in this sorrow and suffering. And final, 
three, of the three-part harmony of Psalm 74 this morning, the final element, supplication, an earnest and humble entreaty or request. We've covered lament, then anthem, now verse 18, supplication. Notice the key words, remember this, do not deliver the soul of your dove to wild beasts, do not forget, have regard, let not, let the poor arise, O God, remember how, do not, their requests, words of entreating, asking the Lord to act on his behalf. Faith is rushed into his soul. These questions presume that God is able to answer. And so he brings his supplication, his appeal and his petition. Key words, remember and do not or, or uh, intervene, asking to intervene or let not or arise. In this section, there's two categories of people for which uh, which are the subjects or which influences prayer. First, is, he describes as wild beasts, and second, those who are like doves. So in verse 18, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles your name. It says, do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. So the enemies who have destroyed the temple are like the wild beasts. Yet the people of God, his sheep and congregation, are like a dove. Wild beasts are unclean and they go forth destructively in their own passions and they have no reason or direction in the picture here but are like ravenous dogs and canine scavengers who make nothing but trouble and feed on destruction. But a dove is a precious and worthy sacrifice that was acceptable in the Lord's sanctuary. A clean animal in the picture of the law one that represented even the Holy Spirit Himself as a picture of God's presence with His people. So His people remain in His presence if He answers this supplication. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Wild beasts, He describes our enemy that scoffs as the enemy that scoffs or the foolish that revile. Inhabitants of violence in dark places, foolish scoffers, uproarious, clamorous foes. One example, verse 20. Have regard for the covenant for the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitants of violence. Dark places of the land could refer to those areas void of the revelation of God, where the word and, and truth of God have not shined. And thus, in this environment where the word has not been proclaimed, where the law of God has not been enforced, where the prophetic voice has been absent, then those who are, who are saturated in violent sin and who are uh, acting out of, of their base nature gain more and more courage to do so as they network in their habitations of violence, finding refuge in the dark places of the land because the testimony of truth is languishing. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to the people. We live in a land where wild beasts in these kinds of places have thrived in recent years. But let us pray that the Lord would have regard for His covenant, that He would intervene and not forget the life of the poor. Speaking of the poor or the doves, as it were, the clean animals representing the congregation and His sheep, He mentions their souls, which are the concern of the Lord. Deliver the soul of your dove. He mentions the life of the poor, the downtrodden, the poor and needy. 
These are the ones who have humbled themselves in appeal and petition, who join him in this supplication to bring their requests before the Lord. Save us. We are vulnerable, helpless, dependent, threatened sheep. And so, in this supplication, we see these ideas coming forth. And lastly, under supplication, we see an appeal to the covenant. What is the covenant? The covenant is God's word and bond as it applies to His people, to His own. It is the promise that He has made, the agreement, the relational terms that He has forged in blood with His people that assure them that He will never break His promises. And so to this ground, our author appeals. He says, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, the foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. And then in this context, verse 20, have regard for the covenant. Have regard for the covenant. Remember what you had, the document to which you have affixed your name, as it were. He's recalling to the Lord's attention in his humble and desperate entreaty, in his earnest supplication, he's recalling to the Lord's attention, not as if the Lord had forgot, but making it the ground of his request. He's telling him, Lord, you yourself have signed your name and fixed your reputation, as it were, to promises to your people. So for your namesake, for your glory, and for the legitimacy, the integrity of that document, as it were, of that relationship forged in blood, intervene. Do not forget. This is a great way to pray. This is a great way to bring up or to bring to the Lord our worship in a day when we are surrounded by ruins. Be honest of our lament. Be quick to offer anthems to His praise and then to appeal to the covenant as we make our requests known. Have regard for the covenant. Defend your cause, He goes on to say. Cause, again, referring to this covenant. He says, Arise, O God. A language of call to war, call to action. Arise, O Lord. That is, Lord, fit yourself for battle against my enemies. Defend your cause. Your cause meaning your purposes, your decree through your covenant with your people. And of course, he closes, Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. As we consider these words today, perhaps an application for us might be a prayer, something like this. Lord God, let the shed blood of Jesus Christ be featured in all its power and glory. As you grant salvation for souls, deliverance from bondage, growth for your kingdom, defeat of your enemies, advancement of your fame and your renown, clarity for your spoken word, faith and strength for your people to stand, assurance of salvation for the congregation, for the elect expedited sanctification that we might more speedily be changed into the image of Jesus Christ ever more so as the day approaches and let the shed blood of Jesus be featured as praise and obedience 
in spite of the carnage around us, is offered to you in lament and anthem and supplication from the faithful throats of your people, who in light of what's going on around them, nevertheless realize that even through sorrow, difficulties, and spiritual fallout, there is a promise that remains and a word that will never return void and a certainty in Jesus Christ that whatever God has decreed will be accomplished in His time. Therefore, let us pray and praise accordingly. Let us close in prayer this morning. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your holy word. We thank You for the reassuring refuge that is provided for us and these words written so long ago, yet so appropriate for our condition, our circumstances, even this day. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart of the psalmist, one that's honest to realize, Lord Jesus, and with all our hope invested in one single Savior, so that we recognize, Lord, our need for that Savior when there are circumstances that seem to threaten our hope. Let us bring honestly our lament before you, but let us also praise you with the anthem to lift up your glories in this place and in our homes. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would move us to make our requests known before you with the humility and earnestness, knowing the power that you have to grant our request and also our great need as your people, the sheep of your pasture. Seal your word upon our hearts, we pray. May we not soon forget. May we remember and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.